engineers Simon Hawkes and Anthony Demanti, or Hawkes and AD to their mates, are on a journey down the river of water engineering. In this podcast series, Hawkes and AD share their inspiring conversations with a cross-section of people from the water industry and beyond. The conversations aim to motivate students and professionals alike to contribute to the growth of the engineering profession. So, without further ado, it's over to you, lads. Hello, esteemed listeners, and welcome to the Good Drop podcast, the first of 2024 series. My name is Simon Hawkes, and with me today in the booth is my friend and co-host, Anthony Demanti. It's fantastic to be back for another big year in front of us, reinvigorated from a very welcome and relaxing Christmas break. How are you doing, AD? Hi, Simon, and hello, everyone. I'm doing pretty well, thank you. And uh, like you, I'm super thrilled to be back in the podcast studio working with you after what seems like a quite a long Christmas break, and I'm really excited to kickstart the 2024 series with a, a wonderful guest and a guest who we both came across late last year, and she has a very interesting and important role, and I'm certainly keen to learn more about her. As am I, and thank you too for flying solo on the on the last show of last year. It was a very busy time of the year, so... It was perhaps opportune that you got your chance to cut your jib on, on your own and see how you tracked, and I thought yeah. it turned out very well. I, I enjoyed listening to Rolf. It was disappointing to miss the uh, opportunity to speak with him. I'll say that. Yeah, but, uh, not a problem, Simon. I uh, Thanks for the opportunity for, to, to let me go solo, and I, I did have a good time, but don't worry. Your job's safe. We're, we're, we're <laughs> a good team, and let's keep working together. All right. Well, AD, to get things started, let me introduce our guest for today. Our guest today is Amber Craig, Senior Project Officer and Hydroclimate Analyst at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. Amber's an extremely passionate and enthusiastic water professional who is deeply involved in extracurricular activities, giving back to the industry through her involvement with Homeward Bound, an international leadership program focused on the development of women in STEM and working together for a more sustainable and equitable world. She also carries on her passion from her earth science, majoring in geology background as a digger with dinosaur dreaming in conjunction with Melbourne Museum and Monash University. Now, listeners, Amber also shares something in common with AD, having the honour of being awarded AWA, Queensland Branch, Young Award Professional of the Year for 2023, which is an absolutely outstanding accolade. So I'm very excited to hear about these things and more as we speak with Amber today. Amber, welcome. And firstly, tell me, has the gravity of your award as YWP Queensland Branch Professional of the Year sunk in yet? Uh, Well, firstly, thanks for having me and hello to the listeners. This is my podcast debut, so please bear with me while I put on the training wheels. But in terms of the gravity of the award, Honestly, no. I think what it's been almost six months and I think I'm still in a bit of a pinch me moment, but I think being on the podcast today makes it a little bit more real in a, in a good way. Great to have you with us, Amber. Simon, I'm going to kick off the questions for Amber. Tell us your elevator pitch on who you are and please tell us about that journey on why you left sunny Melbourne and came to Brisbane. I will do my best. Uh, So my name is Amber. I work in water management at a federal level. So for me at the moment, that means working at the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. My role is largely being a knowledge broker. So I'm the one that gets to communicate between the pure scientists and the researchers and decision makers and making sure that they're talking to each other and everyone has the information that they need and that they're looking for. So I really love being in that space. As you alluded to, some of my other passions are in the diversity and inclusion space. So uh, at the moment, particularly focused on increasing diversity in uh, leadership roles and representation there. Otherwise, on probably more of a fun side, out of work side, uh, hobbies are dancing. Not very good at it, but really love it. Uh, I really enjoy beach time, which was part of the catalyst to move to the Sunshine State and be closer to some pretty good beaches. I want to be a green thumb, but that is one thing that's a work in progress. And uh, otherwise, yeah, love to travel, which is probably 
what was some of the underlying reasons of the move. So for me, yeah, originally from Melbourne, not so sunny, so I'm not sure which Melbourne you're referring to, Anthony, <laughs> but um, after my studies, I you know, had a little bit of a think and just sort of realised that I was ready to move on to a different city, uh, some new opportunities decided to move up to Brisbane actually in 2019 originally um, and also to be closer to some extended family that was up here was a really big draw card. I ended up moving for career reasons to a very less sunny Canberra uh, and then <laughs> came back to Brisbane at the start of 2023. So yeah, I'm really loving being back and being able to now really put down some roots here. Lovely. That's great. I couldn't help but pick up on that knowledge broker line that you are. Could you just explain a little bit more about that? Because I was quite interested. Yeah, I think um, trying to find a way to describe the many different roles that sit in, I think, a lot of different spaces, but the water space or I think in a complex world that is federal government. I'm very fortunate. I, I sit in a role within the agency that's the applied science space. And I do work with people that I think are really researchers in their own right within the agency and modelers and, and incredible minds in that regard. And then we've got the people that know the policy in and out and have been there for decades. And it's so impressive. And I think for me being a knowledge broker, I've that's me trying to find my space of where I can add value. And I think I've always really seen the value in being able to apply science in the best way possible. And I think that that can, is actually harder than what it seems as well. Science communication is mm. um, a, a, you know, a dedicated stream. And I think sometimes that's underestimated, but for me, it's connecting all the dots. I really have always loved having a really complex picture and being able to put all the pieces of the puzzle together. And I think also that's being able to bring people together for a collective mission and a collective purpose. So that's part of that knowledge brokering aspect. Oh, and look, it's one of the hardest things I think anybody dealing with a level of translation and, and being that conduit between very technical jargon and give it to me in the layman's terms audience, you know, they very much rely on people like yourself who are, who are that middleman, if you like, to make that connection between people. And, and I know myself, you know, when I'm trying to perhaps explain something that I'd much prefer to be explaining to another engineer, but I'm, mm. I'm trying to explain it to whoever the audience is and, and they're not from that background. It, it really is, it makes you, it puts you on the spot to think okay how is the easiest way in which i can distill this and make it understandable so yeah it's quite a challenging role that being that knowledge broker so i've got a question you've kind of noted in your show notes that you've got a passion for wanting to solve climate change but at one stage was interested in being a theoretical physicist as well so i want to know at what point along the journey did you decide that you didn't want to embrace your inner sheldon and you um, chose to pursue this dream instead uh, I almost wish I had that phrase of the inner Sheldon back then, but I didn't. Maybe it would have <laughs> enabled me to continue. But in terms of a point in my journey, I feel like it was quite an abrupt one. I ended up crying in my mum's car two weeks into university because I was so overwhelmed with mm. physics. But I think mm. to, to pull it back to the start and the lead up is that for wanting to get into physics to begin with, I always loved maths. I think I was really lucky even at primary school. I remember Mr. Peterson in grade three was this incredible, both maths teacher, but also this incredible cartoonist. And I think he really embodied that you could do multiple things in very different fields. And and um, I credit a lot of uh, my desire to go down the math stream from him. So it was really early. And then that continued in, in high school. And then getting into high school, again, had some really supportive teachers and I really loved physics because it was the applied math side and it was very fun. And I think I also maybe tried to go down the professional route with physics after my teacher pointed out that I was one of four girls in the physics class in year 12. And I feel like I kind of wore that as a badge of honour and I was like, oh, wouldn't it be so great to be a trailblazer and to be one of those rare women in the physics field? Yeah, I'm going to do that. But then on the other side, or, you know, dreamt very big and said, you know, I'm going to solve climate change, which 
is just a huge statement to make it basically 17 years old. So there was the, yeah, two very different paths. And I was lucky enough to go to, to the University of Melbourne that I could have done either. So I, I did largely have my focus already set on doing meteorology and climate science. And then I think that just really focused on that path after the slight breakdown in my mum's car. It was a good lesson because I worked really hard in, in that physics subject. I was the textbook reader and I ended up, you know, doing great marks. And I, I kind of now realise that it was never in vain because when you do meteorology or earth sciences, you know, you're a little bit of a physicist, you're a little bit of a chemist, you're a mathematician sitting mm. in there. Like you get to be a bit of everything, but also for me, it was the application of the science and something that maybe had a bit more impact than a theoretical stream of science I think really for me just to hit the mark so finding that role you talk about that point in time for most people you know it's it's just when you think back to you know your dreams of that time when you you're finishing school and where you think you're you know pointing your trajectory to head into the future it's such an exciting time so yeah it's nice to hear just you talk about you know the the cold hard realization too that something is a cut above where you think you need to be as well as perhaps presenting a, an opportunity to really challenge yourself so who knows you, you can never close a door but yeah really interesting to hear amber you mentioned you are an earth scientist majoring in geology Obviously, Melbourne's a little bit different setup because I've never heard anyone say anything like that in Queensland before. So yeah, well, I don't put... know about James Cook, but it was that it was certainly at the uni I attended to. Earth scientist, <laughs> Department of Earth Sciences. Yes. Okay. You anyway, can probably can... give a much better description, Amber. Do you want to do you want to help yeah. Anthony? Please tell me more about it, please, Amber. <laughs> oh gosh, pressure now. Um. So. Yeah, so for, for University of Melbourne, you could specifically do, I guess, Bachelor of Science, but also do Earth Sciences. So that was, I did a bachelor's and I did a master's in it. Um, I think in terms of coining myself an Earth Scientist, for me, it's also recognising that I wasn't just a pure geologist. So, so much of my studies were mixed. So I had the geology side, but a lot of the research and the coursework, et cetera, that I did really relied on the fact that I could understand oceans and what was happening from the climate and what was happening with the Australian continent and tectonics. Like it was part mm -hmm. of those that start of wanting the big puzzle and having all the pieces slot together. Mm, and I so for it. me, the name Earth Scientist kind of neatly wraps that up rather than just going down the purest line as well. So. And what attracted you to this though? Oh, it was very interesting. So when I went into university. As I said, I, I was very firm on meteorology and I am a very organised person. So I did know exactly the subjects I needed to do to achieve achieve that major in the first one. It was uh, a subject that was split between half geology and half meteorology, I guess recognising the earth scientist element. I actually was dreading it because I did the very common thing where you confuse geology with geography and I hated geography in high school. <laughs> in all honesty, I was such a different person in high school. I couldn't stand being outside. I hated getting in the mud. I had all these like almost like PTSD of like standing outside drawing plants and dealing with leeches and being in gale force winds. And I just thought, oh no, I have to trudge through like six weeks to get to the goal that is meteorology but um, kind of jokes on me because the first lecture I remember we were talking about the solar system and my lecturer ended up handing around a piece of the moon and I remember it coming to me and I just had the absolute nerdy moment of like this is the coolest thing ever <laughs> and for, you know went out called my mum doing the same thing being like I just had the best lecture ever and after that it was just this incredible Pandora's box that opened for me about what even geology was and I think the really amazing thing that has always stuck with me that one of my lecturers did say was that rocks have this incredible ability to hold the story of the earth within mm. and we just mm -hmm. need to have like the right it. language to read it and to understand it 
And for me, that was always so poetic. And I think it's pretty incredible. You know, I look around my apartment and I have probably way too many rocks. (laughs) But it's incredible to think that each rock holds just that snapshot story of what did happen once upon a time and sometimes millions of years ago. It's pretty incredible. I share that. You know, you think of like phenomena like the KT line. My brain just explodes thinking, you know, of uh, just how old things are and potentially there's going to be another 15 billion years as long as we don't blow it up. It's such a an amazing thing that that information contained in a nugget of rock. Mm. And I feel like sometimes it does put the world and life into a little bit of perspective. You know, we have such power over the lives that we do have, but also when you put it into the scale of the Earth being, you know, 4.32 billion years old, you know, we're not even really a blink. So it's mm. sometimes it does uh, play with your perspective, but it's pretty fun. <laughs> Amber, look, this isn't a geology show, but when you were saying all this and this passion about how rocks form and the story, I have a fascination with zebra stone. It's this amazing rock. I'll have to send you a picture of it. It's, just, it's, it's like the stripes of a zebra. And I'm like, no one knows how it was formed. So if you're looking for a challenge, this earth scientist, can you maybe <laughs> unlock how these the zebra stone was formed but anyway we better keep going uh, yeah oh but please send that to me because that's definitely going to be a rabbit hole i think i'm going to fall down now <laughs> so thank you always that's up right. for sharing the rock nerdiness <laughs> okay that's it all right something else you mentioned too and that i mentioned in in your introduction was uh, your involvement and your interest in dinosaurs so you've told us that you're a digger for dinosaur dreaming team as part of melbourne museum Can you tell us a little bit more about this passion and and what exactly a digger is and what what you do? Yeah, absolutely. Uh, I think for this one, I do have to give a bit of a nerd content warning because it's about to get nerdy (laughs) pretty quickly. Um, So, uh, yeah, it's it's kind of an interesting one because I would have never pegged myself to, to go and be a digger. I was, uh, I actually have a slightly mild fear of dinosaurs. So you just really wouldn't have picked it. And I didn't actually see Jurassic Park until like eight years ago. And I've been, you know, <laughs> a part of dinosaur dreaming for 10. So I um, feel like that was part of the indoctrination. But with Dinosaur Dreaming, it really is an incredible program that's run on the coast of Victoria. So there's a couple of different sites, some to the east, some to the west. It has been running for nearly 30 years. So, well, it's 30 years this year, since 1994. And as you mentioned, it's it's run collectively through Melbourne Museum and Monash University. So it's a really supportive environment, I would say, because you have so many different people coming from many different fields and expertise. And it's probably not what you think, because there's a mix of experts that, yes, there's the dinosaur experts. We're actually also looking for mammal bones. So there's mammal expert, rock experts, because it's largely volunteer-led, you actually have this interesting mix of people that go and largely, like myself, using their annual leave to go dig up some dinosaur bones. So they can be IT experts or nurses, economists, office workers. And it's it takes a, a special type of person. So we actually spend about eight hours a day digging on the beach. So it's not what you do see in Jurassic Park, we can't just simply go and brush away dirt and you find a massive white dinosaur <laughs> bone or or a collection of bones that is clearly a dinosaur. Does not happen for us down in Victoria. We're finding really tiny bones that are actually like a chocolatey brown colour and they're encased in really solid sandstone and we have to first dig up the loose sand usually from the coastline to find the solid sandstone and then we break it from giant bits of rock and with hammers and chisels break it down to almost one centimeter cube trying to find the tiny tiniest bones that you can think of Uh, and you know these rocks are 110 million years old so we're the first humans to really ever see what's in it and we all have our own skill sets and experience that we bring to the dig and, you know, that's just really the start of the rock's journey. You know, once we find it on the beach, then it gets hiked back the, up the cliff, goes back to the museum. They do their identification and further research and they get to, you know, take it to a whole new level. But I think one of the reasons that I love doing it, but also I love talking about it, is that dinosaurs seem to somehow bring out this childlike wonder 
in mm. everyone. And um, sometimes I find it's actually more wonder in adults than the kids themselves. It's, yeah, really channels that big kid energy. <laughs> yeah, look, there's a little place near me and you can fossick for um, what they call Thunderbird eggs on mm. in Mount Tambourine, which not obviously... Um, it's hard work. <laughs> It's not not related to actual dinosaurs. It's more of a geological feature, but um, very um, yeah, hard yucca, like like you say, uh, Anthony. So going out there for eight hours a day, yeah, you really do you question sometimes, am I doing the right thing with my weekend? Honestly, it's never crossed my mind once. Oh wow, That's <laughs> yeah. Awesome. Even when sometimes you know we're running off the beach because a thunderstorm setting in, it's probably only at that point. But it's more a oh rats. Now we you know we go break rock back at another facility that's close by. So yeah, that's why I say it takes a sort of special type of person to want to do that. But yeah, ten years in, I'd say that I'm pretty hooked. I'm not going anywhere. <laughs> Awesome. It's, it sounds like a really interesting vocation or, or extracurricular activity, however you want to call it. Yeah, it's it's quite interesting. Didn't know such a thing existed. I'll have to have a look at next time at Monash Museum. Ember, you're such a passionate person. I absolutely love it. I think I'm quickly understanding what really motivates you and and excites you. And I think it's those two things, people and the planet. They're the two things that just come out and where did this initially come from, this passion for people and climate change and uh, the planet? Is it a family trait or is it just something you've seen on TV or where was it born, this passion? Mm, that's a great question. I think I was always really fortunate. Like My family was really supportive of, I guess, whatever direction my brother or I took. But, yeah, now that you say that, it wasn't really instilled from from them or their career paths. I think looking back, I always loved animals. That was probably the first clue. So I always had the dream of being a vet. And I think doing work experience in year 10 sort of squashed that dream and, and was oh. a bit of a pivot point. <laughs> Just, it was pretty confronting, you know, seeing animals go through hardships. But also for me, and I guess, you know, to your point about uh, people, it was seeing the owners just go through such distress was yeah quite mm. confronting and so I think it was a lot of little things that actually built up upon reflection I think you know a lot of my formative years were through the millennium drought and so you know I remember that hitting really hard and you know even from a selfish kid perspective mm. we'd found a, a slip and slide I think on some hard rubbish and we were waiting for the next summer to use it and then all the droughts hit and the water restrictions hit and we never used it so I've I've never used a slip and slide ever mm. um and so you know that sits in my memory or I remember mm. being really excited probably really lamely about learning about recycling at primary school they kind of came in quite late um there or you know some really bad bushfires when I was younger but mm. I don't mm -hmm. think it was really until I got into high school where there was some of that acknowledgement and education, I guess, what was happening to the planet and that climate change was a thing. And it was a bit of a organic progression. I never thought about it as a career path, really. It was just following my passion. So I ended up in a environment committee that got started up, I think, when I was in year 10 in high school. And, you know, next thing I was talking to a government official and getting some grants for solar panels for the school or setting up a mobile phone recycling program and it all just sort of cascaded and then I don't even remember a, a, a sort of lightning bolt moment but then suddenly the language as I was leaving high school was yeah I'm going to solve climate change which is is huge but I think also it's the it's really exciting to have found water because I think it's really where rubber hits the road in a lot of aspects to climate change. And so to be able to make a tangible impact, hopefully for the good through that means, um, instead of trying to solve the amorphous sort of blob that is climate change, it's really going mm -hmm. to the heart of the problem. What a beautiful way of reflecting on your journey. I, I really enjoyed that. Thank you. <laughs> Yeah, thanks for the question. It's, yeah, it's been a good chance to reflect. The bushfires really hit home to me when you said that. That really, that's an image that I'll, I won't forget in a hurry and really seeing climate change in action. Just mm. you got to stop and have those moments of reflection. 
and it mm. really does leave a mark. Mm. You talk about Black Saturday, it's, for example, in terms of bushfires, it's it's very much a very acute occurrence. It comes and goes, whereas climate change is this slow, insidious progression, which, you know, you don't notice the tide running up on the shore and the difference in five years or 10 years or even 50, but it continues and it's the lack of attitude or lack of inaction that, that is our biggest challenge. And we obviously see the, the problems and climate denialists um, talking about that saying it's all a conflagration and it's not real and that's the hardest thing i think when we work in in an industry somewhat related to the challenges of climate change i don't know your opinion on that but i expect there's um, some difficulties as well that you can see yeah i think everyone has for you know even through media and some of the commentary that's you know chopped and changed as different people come into say political power or just the different priorities of society. I think I really though appreciate just how confronting it can be to just try and think of what climate change is and what it means. Humans are you know a species that also wants certainty you know when we didn't have certainty historically it meant that we were going to die and so to try and work through such a huge problem where as much as the science is trying to catch up, we really don't know exactly what it means. And, you know, we got taught it at university about feedback loops and a lot of those, we just don't really know how things are going to build on each other or what's going to trigger something else and the dominoes that might fall. And that's quite harrowing and daunting to people, both that understand some of it or people that might not understand any of it. And so mm. I think it, it's so easy to just, be in denial because the truth is really full on and confronting and and it's a, it is also an an emotional component i mean anthony you know was saying and and so on about that, that acute awareness of when bushfires hit like that actually hits quite an emotional part of seeing the country oh, on fire and oh my gosh. you know so even yeah. though there's a science element to climate change and that we can see different trends of temperatures and carbon dioxide going into the atmosphere when it it comes to the the emotional draw card and and the human element, I mean, it's always going to be a very complex conversation, and people have different priorities and perspectives that have to all play into it. So, yeah, it's a hard one, and there's definitely no easy solution. Okay, all right, I've got another question. How did an Earth scientist bob up in the field of water? Sorry, I had to put that. <laughs> <laughs> Look, as a geologist, I think half my degree was puns, so I appreciate a good pun, <laughs> that's for sure. <laughs> um, yeah, so going back again to, to the university days, it really was finding geology in that first year of my studies that pivoted me quite significantly towards water. So um, as I got to the end of my second year, I had to make a choice whether I was majoring in meteorology and climate science or I was going to be a geologist. And through a lot of very interesting conversations, I decided to go down the geology route. And I did move more of my efforts in the climate space to uh, on-campus campaigns, actually, to see if I could drive change through a social political route. And what I really loved is because of the pivot with geology, it really opened up a lot of doors when I was doing my master's. So at the University of Melbourne, the master's that I did anyway was um, part coursework, part research. So when I was doing the coursework, um, I always was pretty firm that I, was, I wasn't really interested in going to mining related career paths or mm -hmm. industries. So I chose a really wide range of, of subjects. And actually one of them was hydrogeology. And that was my mm. first exposure to the oh, water world. That's a black that's an exciting one. one. Oh, oh, yeah. Okay. oh yeah. yeah. Yeah, keep going on this. And yeah. I think, you know, it always reminds me, you know, someone said, oh, you know, groundwater is the forgotten cousin of the water world. And mm. it, it does feel like that. But yeah, I was really lucky with even how they when they were teaching it and they were bringing it back to some home truths of, 
you know, I grew up in Melbourne, so going through the Burnley Tunnel and I remember being terrified going through that tunnel because you'd always see water cascading down the walls. <laughs> and it was in that subject, they were like, oh, if someone just looked at a geology map, they would never have built a tunnel there because it, they just would have <laughs> known they'd need to do all the pumping because of all the water mm. pressure. Mm. And so it was interesting upon reflection of just how much water kept then maybe I'll, I'll do a pun it's springing up in my <laughs> research of because I was looking at a certain sand unit in the Murray Basin actually it was looking at how the story was captured in that sand but I was looking at you know what the oceans were doing you know five seven million years ago but it was I was looking at old riverbeds I was looking at old lakes and one for me the big aha moment was learning about groundwater understanding why the sand looked the way it was and it was because it was an aquifer but no one was talking about it in the literature like no one had actively connected those dots for me and so I think that was a really beautiful way of drawing me into it but I, I really didn't realize that I was qualified to be in the water industry until I moved to Brisbane and I think did a lot of soul searching and yeah towards the later part of 2019 started as a, a field technician in groundwater and yeah it was probably one of the best stepping stones out of university I could have picked and yeah it's led me here. Oh well that leads perfectly into that next question so you've been working for Murray-Darling Basin Authority since 2020 so it and and which is in, inextricably tied to one of the, the water reform challenges of our era. Firstly, can you explain to us how you came to be part of this important organisation? And secondly, how do you manage that sense of responsibility that comes with being part of this challenge? Mm, yeah, great question. So coming into the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, it really does go back to 2019 when I applied for the graduate program through the agency. And so to cast your minds back to 2019, it was a time when we had drought through Australia, but also globally. And I guess having a bit more of a finger on the pulse in terms of water, I, I really vividly remember a lot of media at that time, they were talking about ground zero for Cape Town and Chennai, which are major international yeah. places looking at day zero. So just projected dates that they were going to run out of groundwater. And I just thought that was unfathomable to not be able to access water and then being closer to home and seeing the Murray-Darling Basin go through such an intense drought. And they were saying, you know, it was the worst drought in 125 years. It, and I remember being so completely devastated by what I was seeing and weirdly also drawn to it. And I think I somehow had this little light bulb moment of, oh, maybe I could actually help with this problem from my studies and things like that. And, you know, I, it is a huge challenge and, you know, for, for a lot of people, they actually don't know much about the Murray-Darling Basin. I sure didn't, you know, when I was joining the agency, but, you know, for, for a bit of context for those that might not know, it is it is a huge basin. It runs from down in Adelaide, the, the Murray Mouth, and it goes all the way up into Queensland, so past Roma, and it's home to, you know, over... 2.4 million people there's 50 first nations it's also australia's food bowl and has all these beautiful mm. you know native fish populations and water birds and you know so to see that go through the hardship in 2019 but now be on the inside through the agency to try and hopefully find a solution is pretty incredible so i think being within the agency and being within mdba and trying to find a solution really aligns with my values of actions, not just words. And so for me to be able to be part of that action, to make a change, and I've always just wanted to do meaningful and impactful work. So um, mm. I don't really feel a sense of, say, heavy responsibility, but instead I I think I really feel like I'm inspired to do more. And I really think that, you know, whether it's this space, you know, climate change as a whole or so many other, um, you know, uh, efforts going on in just across society I think a lot of the low-hanging fruit is done so it's the high value high hard work that we need to do so it's just kind of be great to be in it yeah Amber you've answered that beautifully it, it just seems like a perfect fit for you given your passion um, what you want to achieve Amber you've been with the Murray-Darling Basin Authority for a few years but in that short time 
what have you enjoyed the most? What's been the most rewarding? What's been your biggest impact that you've made that you're really, really happy about? Mm. It is honestly really hard to narrow it down to just one thing. Do the best I, you can. I'm not trying I do to the- make it hard. <laughs> yeah, if you've got a couple, that's fine. We, yeah, it might surprise you actually. I think for me, part of the most rewarding aspect of going into the Murray-Darling Basin Authority is actually what it's given me in terms of being able to further my reconciliation journey in terms of First Nations engagement and cultural learning. So, yeah, I remember being really confronted with closing the gap and so all the statistics around Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people, even, you know, life expectancy back when I was, I think, in high school and, and I did go to a, a survival day ceremony where they were giving out these these cards that had the stats on it. And I, I remember having that on my master's desk. So, you know, that was five something years later and I never quite knew how to help, but I, I knew that it was such a big problem and I wanted to do something. And that door really didn't open until I was in the Murray-Darling Basin Authority. So it was getting in there when I was a when I was a graduate, actually, there was a committee that's formed to help implement the agency's reconciliation action plan. Mm-hmm. So to help further those initiatives to bridge the gap into, as it says, like reconcile with Aboriginal and Torres Strait Islander people. And the secretariat actually moved on quite suddenly and there was an opening and I put up my hand to volunteer to be secretariat. Keep in mind, I'm a graduate. I had no idea what an agenda was. I had no idea how to write minutes. And yet I still was like, yeah, I'll give I'll give this a go, I suppose. And so in some ways it felt like I really jumped into the deep end, but I thought it was such a good way to get at least across what was happening in our agency in terms of First Nations engagement. We've had some really longstanding relationships out on the ground um, and you know, we're doing a lot of efforts in that space within the MDBA. So for me, it was a, it was almost a no-brainer to try and get in that committee just to understand more. And through there, I really have developed so much in my cultural learning and understanding. And I think it's, you know, also for me to uh, unpack and also relearn some of the things that I probably missed when I was younger. You know, I didn't really have a very complete history when I was in high school. So I've done a lot of education for myself but what's been really rewarding is then you know slowly stepping more into that space even in a practical element of different projects I've worked with where I have worked directly with communities to try and um, you know bring in their wants and their needs and their knowledge into what we can you know with the agency and, and parts of our work but being able mostly to go out to community and just really deeply listen and to really understand what's what's going on for them. I feel just so privileged to be in that space. And I feel like I have really had a transformative experience going through this reconciliation journey within the agency. So I like to think that is paying forwards and, and making a difference. But yeah, it that might have been a, a different answer than maybe what you're expecting. But no, it's a great <laughs> answer. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Oh, yeah. That transformative experience really hit home to me. Could you tell me what the First Nations people call the river? Um, it's not as a simple answer. As, okay. uh, so, yeah, so, well, as I mentioned, there's 50 First Nations I know. people within so, the yeah. basin. So every river really does have their own local name. So, you know, th- there's some that you might be more familiar with that have a bit more of an agreement, like the Barker, which is for the Darling River. Um, but there's also, you know, I guess the other major system that's in the name of the Murray-Darling Basin Authority, like the Murray River, has so many different names that there's not just a single aboriginal or you know traditional name for the system so it's and that i think that shows the complexity of the space that we're working in as well where you do have all those nations coming together but it's such an incredible tapestry of culture and also connection to country i'd love to hear more about all this simon do you, do you... yeah absolutely yeah no i was i was just thinking about that in in terms of what your personal experiences have been you know on-country engagement with with First Nations people and practices around the river or or just their daily use and and their connection to the river. I mean, they're they're very spiritual people and um, I really, that's probably the the most amazing aspect. 
just how spiritual they are. So, and I find that element just just really yeah takes me aback every mm-hmm. time, and think you know they are really so connected. So, what experiences can you tell us about in terms of that that firsthand uh, on the ground experience? Yeah, I think out of respect for them, I won't probably go into too much detail, but from my experiences, it really has been that increased understanding of of what country means to them. And Mm. I think, you know, we are in an interesting time of being in such a a developed country. And so to also understand where that comes up against that, as you say, that spirituality or, or their traditional knowledge and cultures and practices as well. And I've had honestly such generous people uh, so many meetings yeah on country where and they've you know taken us out and you know shown us scar trees and and shared their their law so l-o-r-e and it's so hard to explain it it just it's such a warm feeling that you get I think when you have such genuine people sharing their authentic selves as well and you know being really open and being really clear about what we can take back in a formal sense and apply to our policies. And some of it is, you know, they shared just knowing that it's more of a personal journey for you to um, understand where they're coming from. And so to be able to, to, to walk across their country and to, and to hear all their connections and speak to the generations and the families that usually they bring along, it's very much a family affair when I have gone out and, yeah, it's probably some of the most memorable and most incredible experiences I've I've actually had in the in the MDBA. So that sounds wonderful. Yeah, yeah it does. Um, um, Simon, I've got another quick question to Amber. Look, in your words, if you can, the best that you can. What does a successful Murray Darling Basin water system look like? Given you got this massive balance of spiritual environmental social and economic economic oh economic everything all these plates what does it look like in your mind mm. oh. what is success or fulfillment what is it yeah I think that's it I honestly think that is really hard and as I said before it's it's very subjective in a lot of ways and I think that's this really incredible balancing act that we have to do. Um, you know, my brain swirls with the conversations I've had with community members and they can be from, you know, the, the as you say, the economic side from an agricultural perspective and they have their own uh, sort of, I guess, definition of success versus, yeah, traditional owners, they have their own definition of success. People in little country towns, they have their own definition. I think for me, you know, it sounds maybe a bit, cliche but it really is trying to find that harmony between all of them I you know we're not really in a position that one can you know be diminished we have to think about everything and it's it's about finding that right balance so I think for me success would be trying to find a balance where people are as happy as they can be and for me it really is about making sure that the people are okay and that the planet is okay so trying to find that equilibrium where as much as we can, everyone is thriving, but also mm. noting that we do have a lot of uncertainty coming our way with potentially what might happen under climate change and and um, our water resources. So I think the success would be also to hopefully cushion some of the blows depending on what does happen under different scenarios and water accessibility. And I think that, you know, water is a human right, so we just need to also make sure that that's factored in into those really hard times to just make sure that we keep people going but also some of those really key uh ecological sites going as well in those hard times so yeah there is no shortage of a challenge in in answering that and um all of all of the different topical challenges involved from my point of view i if I had the magic wanted, it would just be to come up with a system that was flexible, able to adapt, to be like water and adjust and be fluid and be able to define that harmony. Uh, thanks, Amber. It was a tricky question, I know. <laughs> thanks for the curveball. <laughs> <laughs> All right. How about, can you please tell us about your recent success um, with your award for Young Water Professional for Queensland Branch for 2023? So how did you get involved in AWA and... Um, 
what did you think when you were announced as the winner? And thirdly, how has your career trajectory been impacted since then? <laughs> so a great big all in one question there. Well, I'll do my best to hit all three parts, but I feel like I can hear Anthony laughing because he's probably thinking about his own his own journey. Yeah, but yeah. <laughs> um, so yeah, in terms of how I got involved with the Australian Water Association, um, I joined at the start of last year. So part of it was uh, to access the mentoring program that they offered. So I really recognised moving up to Brisbane. So um, at the moment I am in a largely remote working arrangement. So I don't go into an office every day. I am by myself. So um, as you might have been able to tell, I'm also quite a community people person. So looking also to build my community back up and build those connections back up and, you know, looking to a mentor for some big career questions and advice as well. So I definitely struck gold there. Mm. And it was through that, then being eligible for the award and, and going down that path. So, yeah, the what did I think when I won the award? I largely thought it was a mistake. I thought that they read out the <laughs> wrong name. <laughs> I was so I was so ready clapping for someone else and then actually had that moment of like, oh, that's me. Oh, I need yeah, to go yeah. up now. I hear you. I thought it was a Steve Harvey <laughs> moment, did you? Yeah, a little bit. Yeah. <laughs> and so, yeah, it was it was a lot of shock and and disbelief and in and I, yeah, just in my head I was thinking, oh no, this is why they said to have a 30 second speech ready to go just in case and I I don't I don't know and when I'd been at home thinking of what I would say everything just sounded like an Oscars acceptance speech and that's the only thing I had in my mind was because I when I was thinking about oh if, if in a in if in a, a fanciful world I did win what would I say and I said oh I'll just crack a joke that I sound like I'm at the Oscars so if it ends up sounding like an Oscars acceptance speech no one's going to blink twice at it they're going to think it's funny and so sure enough I'm pretty sure that was like one of the first things that came out of my mouth and then was able to actually relax into saying thank you to the people that I needed to but I feel like it was absolutely a whirlwind and not 100% sure what I said but I can say it was at least from the heart whatever if it did come out but yeah I think that the shock was I mean, the other nominees were all so impressive for the young water professional category. And yeah, my secret love was that it was a all all women list as well. That was that was really great to be a part of. And I think for me, I don't really expect or think that I'll get that sort of recognition. I've been called before a bit of the quiet achiever that I sort of, you know, a bit of a heads down, just do what I need to and only really pop up when I think it'll add value to the cause that I'm I'm working on. So, yeah, it's it's been very humbling, especially to go through that um, award win and everything that's happened after. So uh, in terms of the career trajectory, yeah, career trajectory-wise, I think it's a bit too early to tell no, definitely <laughs> um but i think it has influenced my confidence i think that it has made a, a change there and i've you know recently stepped up into some more formal leadership roles at work so you know cause and effect not quite sure there's definitely um, been amazing support from within the Murray-Darling Basin Authority for, for going through this award and, and taking on different opportunities like this one coming on the podcast. So, yeah, I think if nothing else, it's definitely a good lesson to just, you know, give it all a go and throw your hat into the ring and uh, see, see what happens. So, yeah, stay tuned. We'll, we'll see where to from here, maybe. I was just going to say, it's still all about that C word, isn't it? Confidence. It's... So I'm, I'm really happy to hear, you know, that anybody who talks about just a boost in their own confidence makes me feel good, you know, because I think we probably labour on the point, but it's always that insidious little guy in the back of your head telling you otherwise. And it's it's great when people kind of just launch. And uh, yeah, congratulations. That's It's uh, great for you and, and what a great award. Oh, so thank good on you so you. much. Thank you. And, and, yeah, it's really lovely to hear you sort of reflect on that night. And it's a night that you'll remember, I'll remember, and um, I feel we'll always sort of have that connection as a result of that. 
you know, you are good enough, you've deserved it. And it is just a lovely, humbling experience to be recognised by your peers and just terrific achievement. I think, was there half a dozen? There was half a dozen candidates in the Young Water Professional? Yeah, I think yeah. there were six. Yeah. Was, yeah. Well done again. Look forward to seeing you in Melbourne anyway and go Queensland. <laughs> <laughs> I'll see you then. Yeah, no, it's it's great to share the space with all the all the winners but yeah i'm glad that we've had that meeting <laughs> through that means anthony as well so congrats to you thank you okay we've still got a few questions to go before the the fabulous five your other volunteering exploits in homeward bound can you tell us a little bit about this organization and its aims and, and how you came to be involved yeah so homeward bound's quite an exciting one. So Homeward Bound is a global initiative. So it is a more formal leadership program. So um, the goal is to join together uh, more than 10,000 women worldwide from diverse backgrounds and uh, different streams of STEM, but also empower all those people who do identify as as women um, to, to be leaders and to be leaders particularly on climate action and um, to be a bit of a joint force to hopefully progress things in that space, but from uh, various lenses and approaches. So I was really fortunate enough that connected to the marriage Darling with Basin Authorities graduate program, you get a mentor. So my mentor when I was in my grad year um, was a part of Homeward Bound Cohort 6. And I remember her sharing her experiences and she was in the very early stages, but you know, she just she described the leadership program as, you know, opportunity for for, for self-development, you know, connecting with all these incredible women across the world. And that's kind of part one, there's an online delivery of this leadership program. Part two is you have the opportunity to go to Antarctica, if you wish. Oh, wow. And so, yeah, it ends up being a bit of a floating workshop for a couple of weeks where we finally get to meet each other face to face. And then you, yeah, if you do choose to go, that you see the the impacts of climate change on the yeah. Earth's most extreme environment. So I think if that's not inspiring, I'm not sure what quite <laughs> will be. So, yeah, it's incredible to be for me, uh, you know, in cohort eight, we have about 100 women. So I definitely admire each and every one of them. And I just, it's an honour to be included in, in is such an incredible uh, collective of very switched on women. I'll say that much. Was there a selection process? I mean, 100 is probably a fairly exclusive membership. Yeah, so <laughs> it was, yeah, I'm not sure how many apply, but I dare say it was much more than than 100, um, considering it is global. So, you know, mm. we have people from all over. It's incredible to go online and, you know, you'll go into a little breakout room and there'll be someone from like Buenos Aires or, you know, mm. the US or London, you know, we've had people come in from, from parts of Africa. Like it's, it's pretty amazing. But it, yeah, it was, it was an application process that you did yourself and you did a little, you know, video pitch. And so, for me, that was really a, a rewarding process even in itself because I think I was at a bit of a pivot point. I was moving roles within the agency and was moving to this more, I guess, climate-focused area in applied science. And so, so many things lined up and I turned 30 last year. So, the, the program was starting the month that I was starting a new decade and I really wanted to start that decade right. So, being able to put that all into an application and to reflect on my journey so far, but also where I was maybe thinking of going, pretty incredible to then be able to be in that program. And it's been spooky of some of the things that have aligned that we've had conversations or I've been provided, you know, the language or, or tools or support to further. Um, it was the absolute perfect time in my life to do it. And I'm, yeah, and then you're part of the the cohort for what they call the convergence of Homeward Bound. So it's basically the alumni stream of the program and I'm now in it for life. So uh, me wow. amazing membership. What a wonderful <laughs> adventure. Yeah. You have so much on your plate. Amber. <laughs> I feel honoured just to have this moment just talking with you with everything going on. <laughs> yeah. I have one final question. Have you got time, Simon? Of course. 
so my final question, Amber, is about your love of empowering people and the importance of diversity. I'd like to hear from you any examples of when you've seen these two passions of diversity and empowerment come together and really unlock something special and amazing. Can you mm. share anything that you've seen that you'd like to tell our listeners? Mm, I guess to set the tone of it maybe is the for me the the reason that diversity is so important is that you know everyone does have a right to feel safe and to feel included and to be able to step into a space as their whole self and to share freely and so creating that psychologically safe space I think is really important and it's a bit of a no-brainer, you know, in terms of productivity and innovation, like all the research shows that you need Synergy. diversity. Yeah. Exactly. Like you need, you know, different cultures, genders, experience, just ways of mm, thinking. Like Definitely. Yeah. And, and I mean, also, I think that just leads to a, a better world, you know, who doesn't want a warmer, kinder, more welcoming world. And that's the kind of world that I want to be in. And I've definitely seen that play out. In different spaces i mean some of them have been i've been privileged enough to go to summits and conferences that are specifically looking at at diversity so some have been um yeah first nations leadership and allyship summits or women in leadership specific to the to the australian public service and there's this interesting energy that you can see when people are, are amongst peers and it's it is a safe space where people share very openly and, and you see them be really courageous and be really vulnerable, but also then find the solutions that they take back into a workspace. And, you know, we've experienced it ourselves within the Murray-Darling Basin Authority and um, through support from our executives, we've started an employee-led network that um, at the moment is called the Women's Inclusive Leadership Network. So um, it isn't just for, for women, it's open to, you know, women, men, gender non-conforming people. And for me, it's seeing that level of energy and, and buy-in and just that collective power to to want to make a difference and to ensure that inclusive leadership is across the agency. And, you know, one of my values is to lead by example and you can lead at any level. And that's kind of what mm. this network encapsulates that you can do so much and it can look different for other people. You know, people have different passions they also have different skills and you know and also different time commitments there's some people that can lean in a bit more but really we're all working together to make and well and to improve the culture that already exists within the agency but to to move to a more I guess empowered stance for for a lot of people um and so yeah I get to be a part of that and helped set it up and um yeah get to feed off the energy of a group that's grown a lot since the start um so yeah i've seen, I've seen it in action both in that space and, and a lot of other committees i've been a part of in the agency as well and just to tack on we all work in the water industry which is again another great example of you know we're all passionate we're all diverse we all have a love for water which unites us and brings us together and connects us and we you know come together at um, events like Oswater is that ability to to connect even further and share and it's just lovely and I just yeah it's great to have you part of such of our industry too Amber you've got a great future I, I love what you're doing so I mean that's yep. all my Thank questions you. it's uh, yeah yeah inspirational it's it's great Definitely. to hear a, a younger person talking so cap capably and confidently and uh, really being able to just tell a great story as well you know so Really been Thank great you. hearing it, but um, can she get past the, the fabulous five questions though, Simon? Well, I think so. I think I think, <laughs> I the, the, think so too. The, <laughs> there's no trapdoors, so I think <laughs> <laughs> that's what they all say before you walk across a trapdoor. <laughs> yeah. All right. Well, let's go. See if we can have some fun. So, I'll start it off with number one. What's been the greatest piece of advice received, and who told you? So, greatest piece of advice that I ever got was back in 2020 and it was from a man called Michael I'll only use his first name he'll end, okay. he'll stay like Beyonce but a man <laughs> called Michael who said go towards what puts the fire in your belly and I think I had never had the language of what I was doing 
almost my entire life up until that point. But it's really driven that idea that, you know, go towards what makes you excited and mm -hmm. that really gets your engine going. And, you know, it, it, it reminds me of a, a line that's in Glennon Doyle's book, Untamed. And she says, you know, lean into what makes you uncomfortable. And, you know, where you're uncomfortable, you have the biggest progress. But what she was really meaning was sometimes it's looking towards what's uncomfortable. It's a bit more of a, a, a tell or a sign that that's where you should be really putting your energy and maybe it's exposing some vulnerability in yourself that's actually worth unpacking. I think with this question as well, I, I'd love to take the opportunity to maybe flip it a little bit and pass on some advice and maybe I'll be that person to... <laughs> to someone else. But um, I think one of the best pieces of advice that I, I, I like to pass on to others is that it's, you don't need to know your destination, but just pick the next stepping stone. And I think for me, leaving university, I knew the path that I really didn't want to take. I could see the destination and it was probably the most nerve wracking thing to try and find a stepping stone. And it was to a destination I, I still don't fully have a formed picture of, but by choosing that next stepping stone, I knew that at least it was moving towards something that I knew was right for me and aligned with my values. And so hopefully that helps someone release some pressure as well. Both extremely sound pieces of advice following what what puts the fire in your belly for sure that's that's great i'm just going to say thank you michael for sharing that with amber i enjoyed <laughs> that all right Amber. number two who would you like to share a dinner with and why sorry i feel like i need to contain my giggle on this one um <laughs> <laughs> there's no right or wrong answer oh no but i'm definitely gonna expose me um I'd love to have dinner with Taylor Swift. I'm a massive oh. Swifty. <laughs> it's probably not That's where nothing. you might have thought that was going, but <laughs> I'm sure there's plenty of of people in, in who share that very same sentiment. I reckon. Yeah, I think we'll be She's fighting amazing. for them. Yeah, I think she is. Like, I'm fortunate enough that I'll be going to her concert later this year, and you know, if that doesn't mm. show that she's popular and in her prime, oh, I don't know what is. But um, I think she's just had such an interesting journey, and I think she's gone through phases of, you know, having to maybe conform to what she thinks that she needs to be and she's talked about you know almost having to reinvent herself several you know every few years to stay relevant yeah. and, and the differences for female artists compared to male artists mm. and I feel like she's kind of in this space where she just doesn't really care anymore like she's just embodied wow, who it. she is fully and I think to to be a sponge and to to listen to more of her journey and to where she's at now, I think would be so cool. And I hear she's, she also oh, yeah. loves to make cookies. So you just really want to be, you know, invited to that dinner as well. <laughs> All right. Question three, what is your greatest non-work related achievement? Mm. It's actually something that's probably a little less tangible than maybe some of the achievements we've been talking about. But for me, my greatest achievement is actually stepping outside my comfort zone. So I really made a conscious effort, kind of, I guess, at that change between high school and, and uni where I really noticed that I was saying no to a lot of opportunities and I was more reserved and I was a bit more scared of the world and I just could see where my life was going and being really closed off to saying yes to, to new things. And so having that conscious thought process and and just starting to say yes has opened up such a wealth of opportunities. Like I would have never have done the dinosaur digs had I not sort of changed my approach to life or, you know, I've traveled solo in Africa. I've, you know, even at the digs, like I, I'm known as doing a lot of the power soaring of, of the rocks and, and using power tools used to absolutely terrify me <laughs> slightly still does because I just know that it can end really badly and you know and so I just never would have done that or I've learned how to ice skate or you know do all these things or yeah come on podcasts or, or put my name into the ring for leadership programs so yeah I think being more comfortable being uncomfortable has yeah, like definitely that. changed a lot <laughs> A lot of good things here, Anthony. A lot of, yeah. a lot of, lot of great little nuggets. I tell you, yeah. yeah. I, 
we talk about that one being comfortable in feeling uncomfortable that's that's a that's a great one yeah that's a that's a good thing to recognize and, and consciously step towards so yeah congratulations thank you <laughs> okay my turn amber your favorite place to travel and why that's an easy one I just I said it up the top that I'm a traveler, so I don't think you only it got is one. Quite... You only got one. Though. I only have one. Yeah, only got one. Oh. It's the hardest question by far. I think it is actually. So good thing you left it to near last. Um, uh, favorite place to travel, I think, would actually be Iceland. So yeah, when I went there, it was essentially a Disneyland for geologists. Like it is such mm. an awesome place. It's a place of just such contrasting things. Like it really is the land of fire and ice and, you you know, you're, you're roaming around and there's, you know, volcanoes but then beautiful waterfalls and the people are, are so lovely and it's such this little unique island in the middle of nowhere. It's just, it's fascinating in, in so many ways. And I went there for Christmas uh, quite a few years ago now and, um, yeah, I'm already dying to go back. Oh, wow. What's the food like in Iceland? Ah, uh, really good. Um, <laughs> yeah, it, I mean, I was also want to say expensive because mm -hmm. it's in the middle of nowhere. Yeah, so okay. Um, I, you know, full transparency, I'm a meat eater, and so one of the interesting ones that I had was I remember that at the pub there was a, um, a type of burger. It was a reindeer burger, and it was actually really, really good, but yeah, it it was it it was just so different. But I rem also fish for them is a, a really big thing, and I, I've yeah. tried some of their specialties of you know dried, salted shark and all this sort of stuff, which I wouldn't probably recommend that, but it is an experience. But yeah, thank you for sharing. Yeah, you'll have but to go over and try it for yourself. I reckon. I never say never. <laughs> all right. Lucky last, number five, what is your go-to drink, red, white, or other? Ooh, at the moment is a red. I think being in a, a cold place like Canberra definitely converted me into liking reds. At the moment, I even though I'm, you know, we're in the middle of summer for Brisbane, um, I still feel like I always try and have a, you know, a Merlot or something like quite, I quite like like a heavier red, but I would be lying if I said that my kryptonite isn't an espresso martini. I have to, I have to say that as well. <laughs> nice. You're right about red wine and, and cool weather. It's it's definitely better than the hot heat of Brisbane, that's for sure. <laughs> Even though, though Anthony, I think you tend to enjoy your red wine chilled. Yes, uh, Amber, you know I'm a red wine maker, don't you? Uh, I think I've only heard on uh, smatterings on some of your other um, recordings for the podcast, actually. Yeah, well, I'll save you a bottle of the 23 Cab Sav. Um, it's lovely. So I hope you enjoy that. Well, and I hope we get a chance to experience a, a celebratory uh, espresso martini in, on the 1st of May 24 this year, too. That's going to be a big day for both of us. Amber, I'd just uh, like to wrap up the conversation. Look, thank you so much for joining us. I absolutely loved every moment. You have a wonderful future in, in front of you, and I just feel so privileged that your first podcast was with us. So thank you. Couldn't have said it any better. I completely concur with Anthony that it's uh, been wonderful to have you on and hear your journey and uh, an inspiration to boot. And uh, we really look forward to hearing all the good things that you're going to do in the future. So thanks for joining us. Oh, thank you so much for having me and thank you for holding such a fun and safe space and it's been yeah, pretty special to share my journey. So thank you so much for, for listening and being curious. Thanks again, everyone, for joining us for another episode of the Good Drop Podcast. We'll see you next time. Hooroo.